I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. motorcycle just went by so i wonder if jen will hear that on the audio i'm sure she'll be delighted i mean it was it was far but it sounded like a little (laughs) um hi hi it's so good to see you birthday thank you you're welcome 25 time for that quarter life crisis yeah is it is it happening or is it going to happen soon i think it'll probably or has it happened i'm Un- unclear, but okay. I, it's not actively happening in this moment, is all I can say. You'll know. <laughs> You'll that, know. That's confidence-inspiring. As part of that crisis, do you want to tell the folks what they're going to hear today? Yeah, they're not going to hear anything from me. No, it that's is... a lie. They'll hear quips, <laughs> comments, but input. But no research, because no. my life got away from me this week, and I have yeah. done none of it. And we're flexible here on Missing History, so and we I cite the Michelle Obama episode that I did, <laughs> where I was like, I didn't research somebody, but I just listened to this entire lady's life, and it's amazing. Yeah, I feel, so. I like, I'm deeply appreciative of the flexibility, both of you and of our loyal listeners. There you go, yeah. We're uh, chill here. Yeah. On the old MH podcast. We also are doing this solo. We don't have Jen's guiding hand right now so. i know i'm a, i'm, a, I'm a, anything i'm more nervous about that than i am about like not having anything yeah have fun with the edit jen hope it's good sorry Ooh. yeah okay so i'm gonna take the lead on this um i don't know if i have okay well we'll see how long it is where i'm not maybe we'll just like get distracted and talk about a lot of stuff yeah so i'm not gonna tell you who i'm doing until it's it becomes apparent i'm gonna lay the groundwork okay i like and that we'll see Build where some we suspense. go from there so Hallie Ferguson was born in South Dakota in 1890. She uh, was one of several siblings, and they would often do plays in their living room growing up. And she's a little Irish girl from South Dakota, and she and her family moved to Grinnell, Iowa. I think it's Grinnell because Grinnell College mm. or Grinnell. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I know what you're talking about, and it's one of those words I've never heard said out loud. So I It's no a help. co-ed college in... Iowa, it's um, well known for theatrical productions, uh, even now, like its theater program, I think is pretty strong. Mm -hmm. But she actually majors in philosophy and German, which, okay. Typical. um, In 1911. And uh, after graduation, she marries her college sweetheart, who's Murray Flanagan. So she becomes Hallie Flanagan, (gasps) which if you remember last week, I talked about her a little bit. Yeah. I talk about her a lot now. Yes, I love it. Yeah, she's a member of the Dramatic Club while in college and uh, starts to foster her love of theater and theatrical productions in a more um, intense way, I would say. They move to St. Louis, and her husband works in insurance, and she kind of becomes a housewife um, because they have two kids, right, in 1915 and 1917. Murray doesn't do so hot. He gets tuberculosis pretty soon after and you know 1917 not a good time to get to well it's never a good time to get tuberculosis let's be real no but but like yeah oh that's rough yeah so one of the like um 
what is it, uh, cures or, um, not cures even, but just, um, like treatments, treatments. Thank you. Good morning. My coffee hasn't hit. Um, <laughs> one of the treatments for tuberculosis at the time, t- whoa, hold on, slow down. Tuberculosis at the time was like good climate, good air. Mm-hmm. And so it was thought like wet or hot environments weren't as good as dry, cooler places. So you see a lot of sanitariums, um, crop up in like mountain regions and stuff and so he goes to the colorado sanitarium mm-hmm. and she goes back to grinnell and starts teaching drama at the college which i find fascinating because she doesn't have a degree in it so clearly like she's fostering her self-education of um theater yeah in so order to be able to teach it so he moves and she does not move with him no because she has to now be the breadwinner for two young boys and her husband's care Oh, okay. And this was seen as the best kind of solution for that. In order mm-hmm. for him to get the best care, he had to go to Colorado. In order for her to get a job in 1917, Iowa she had wins. to go to Iowa. Yeah, with a place that had a relationship with her. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure it was challenging. Um, she would travel out there to visit him. Uh, unfortunately, he ended up passing away in 1919. So now she has mm-hmm. two little boys and a career that she has to kind of foster. So we're going to go sad again because it's the early 20s. Um, Jack, one of her sons, the oldest, was uh, he unfortunately got spinal meningitis and passed away in 1922. So she's oh, like, no. we need a palate cleanse. Let's go, Fred, and let's go to Cambridge, Massachusetts. So she, while there, she enrolls in... Workshop 47, which is this production studio. Uh, It later moves from Harvard. It starts in Harvard. It moves to um, New Haven and actually becomes the Yale School of Drama. Wow. Um, So she's kind of at the early genesis of all of that, of like Ivy League. Um, I don't know if it was the Ivy League back then. When did it become the Ivy League? I feel like late 1800s. I feel like. Okay. So she's in. Yeah. It's still privilege up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the guy that ran it was George Baker, and he was really impressed with her, and he names her the director of the group in 1923. So she's got a gift, is what I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. And at this point, she's still, like, like a performer, director? Like... She's more of a director and, like, a producer, I would say. Like, mm-hmm. an overall... Um, general man like she she uh definitely has a big picture in mind which will play into like her future endeavors mm-hmm. um henry mccracken who's yes vassar um or is that because you know him or the, the name no it's, so be- it's because of the name that is a truly yeah. excellent McCracken. college president name yeah it's pretty good um he was a dramatic scholar himself so he she kind of had the zeitgeist of the moment and he found she was very interesting and he was hoping to, uh, he wanted to start an experimental wing of theater at Vassar. Um, and Hallie like clearly had a, had a stake in that version of theater. Like it wasn't all about the classics with her. She definitely wanted to see what was new, what was exciting, what was American, what was Mm -hmm. impactful of the time. So she was, um, Persuaded to go to Vassar for a $3,000 yearly salary, um, which I don't know what that is. Can you do the math on that? What was that in 1924, maybe? Um, 
3,000 bucks every year. Let's find out. That, like, mm-hmm. f- it feels like because she's a woman, she's getting underpaid. Mm, fair. But, like, 44000 a year? That's pretty take. good. For I would take that. an experimental new position, I would say that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, she gets her MA at Radcliffe and begins teaching f- at Vassar the next year. Mm. Um, so, at the time, apparently drama courses were sort of tied into English departments and... Um, more of a scholarly approach to dramatics rather than putting on productions. So they mm-hmm. ne- they didn't even necessarily have theater buildings at the time with which to produce plays. So there's a lot of theory going around, a lot of theater history going around, but maybe not as much production-oriented departments. But Interesting. Um, so that's part of her kind of genesis with Vassar. She's like, no, we need to actually do this. And uh, she uses the assembly hall and the amphitheater to, like, stage productions. And her official title this whole time was director of English speech, not theater or anything like that, because they didn't have a template for how it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, she drew up plans uh, to get a major in drama, but they didn't actually go through. Um, but she did. Uh, she was able to put in... Um, production value and production courses to actually like make the plays a thing very cool yeah so second year of teaching she's clearly like a shooting star in american theater because she gets the guggenheim fellowship which is something they still give out today Mm -hmm. and she's the first woman awarded it in its history it had started in 1925 so it might have been one of the first guggenheim fellowships ever um this was a financial component and it allowed her to travel and expose get exposure to European theater um, world theater around the world. So she gets 14 months to study modern theater. She takes a leave from teaching and she goes to Europe, Russia, um, kind of all over. She befriends like uh, Stanislavski, who was an up and coming of the day. So what mm-hmm. can you tell us about Stanislavski, Michael? Um, is that, that's realism? It's the acting... It's the modern acting. Modern acting. So Mm -hmm. the whole idea of a character comes from internal motivation and has a life inside and must, you know, Mm -hmm. objective and... Objectives. And, and, you know, something to over... You always want something in a scene and, you know, the whole modern acting style. Whereas before it was very surface and very um, Mm -hmm. put upon rather than feeling the feeling that the character would have. Interesting. Do you know what I mean? I d- like he sort of ushered in the whole, yeah, realistic, like naturalistic. Of yes, yeah, Chekhov sort of stuff. Um, she loves Russia. She thinks it's fascinating. She thinks they're doing the most kind of modern take on things. Um, that's going to be problematic because what do Americans love in the 1930s? Russians. We love Russians. We love We communists. love them now, apparently, which is so weird. It's such a weird thing. I mean, I don't... Yeah, whatever. Um, she was most impressed with the Russian theater, and they really liked her, too. I, I will say it is something fascinating to me that one whole aspect of Russia at this time was... A, it really did try to equalize the sexes in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. There's a lot less, um, because of their communist 
manifesto or whatever, their whole uprising, like a lot of it was equality. And while it wasn't in every aspect, like there was still a lot of patriarchal bull- mm-hmm. nonsense. Um, you do see a lot of women rising to equal levels as men. For example, like they sent up women astronauts. We've done it about that before. They had women fighting in their armed forces far before anybody else did in the Western world. So there is this kind of equality in certain aspects. I'm not saying they were like paragons of equal rights, but, you know, and they had a lot of issues as well. I'm not saying they were, oh, it was so great to be a Russian in the 20s. It was not. It was (laughs) it was really bad. Stalin was doing his thing. It wasn't good. So no, um, not at all. But you can see why they weren't like threatened by her and they ushered her in because they were like, oh, you can take this and like implement it in your own country and nat- and also it's like the artist wing of Russia which is different than the political wing but we'll get there um but also the same because everything is politics so that sounds they like love her she bonds with them she really likes them um that's gonna not be a good thing so oh, no. um, she writes a book based on her travel and she goes back to Vassar in 27 she's like oh we have so much to do so she, the first thing she does is a checkoff play um, using different styles for each of the acts. So let me see. The first one was done in like a typical Chekhov style as he wrote it. The second was like expressionistic. And the third act was like a like really far out kind of expressionistic, or not expressionistic, um, bizarre kind of take on it just mm-hmm. to kind of de- deconstruct and put it back together. Uh, it went really well and she starts to direct more plays at Vassar so she gets to premiere a T.S. Eliot play she does um, Euripides she does a bunch of classic things reinterpreted into a modern style so that it's like applicable to today Um, she also does Euripides in original Greek that's casual and kind of like yeah so it's very cerebral but also fascinating and she gets the um she gets a professor of Greek to help coach the actors so that they actually can do it. Yeah. That's anyway. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. She just, I, for lack of a better word, she just geeks out. Mm-hmm. She geeks out on theater. She geeks out on presenting it to people. And she's just fascinating. Um, oh, Philip Davis, who was this professor of Greek, there's apparently a romance between them. They <gasps> get married. And oh, boy. Um, so then she's got a little husband action going on. <laughs> but she still maintains her Hallie Flanagan name because she has her own identity and she doesn't need to change her name for her new hubs. Um, so now, where are we? We're in 1934. So as this is happening... Um, the Great Depression has hit, you know, it hits in 1929, and then the effects are felt for years afterwards. And as um, America sort of deals with astronomical unemployment due to an unregulated system, I'm just going to say that right now, regulations are there on purpose um, because people are terrible. Uh, <laughs> people are Preach. out of work. People can't eat. People aren't working. Um, and... A new administration is elected in 1932. What do we know about him? FDR. Loves he some government about, programs. He loves a government program. So he puts in what is now um, known as the New Deal. It was known then as the New Deal. They actually did a really good marketing plan with that. Of like, we're going to give Joe a chance to 
get himself on his feet and provide for his family. So there's a whole wing of it that is like social uh, care, I would say. Like there's food, food soup lines and stuff. And like um, there's outreach of that kind of just like make sure people aren't starving. There's that whole wing. But then there's a huge thing of like, let's put Americans to work. Now, one with a liberal tendency would be, yes, the government has the ability to employ all these people and, like, support them through a time of crisis and provide things for the nation that benefit us all for a long time. So you'll know things like bridges are built, the Hoover Dam, um, roads are maintained and, and infrastructure is created in that way. We still rely on a lot of structures that were built in the 30s. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of um, not only buildings of use, like post offices and and uh, government buildings, but also things like sculpture in public spaces, um, sidewalks through parks. I mean, things of that nature that are a little more thought of when you think of the Work Progress Administration, the WPA. Mm-hmm. But there's also this, um, to his credit, uh oh hang on i gotta find the name on here. harry hopkins who coincidentally went to grinnell let's think about that for a minute so harry hopkins is appointed um a secretary of commerce he was a social worker he was one of the great architects of the new deal and it was through his program that focused on not only like the infrastructure and and backbone of the country, but also like its culture and its heart is what I would say in my Mm -hmm. poetic way. So like there was not only a need for all of these um, needs, these genuine needs for everyone, but there was also like the morale aspect to their great credit was thought of as equally important. They knew that this depression (laughs) was correctly named in that it affected the spirit of people. You know, when everyone is unemployed and you just are miserable because you have no way out, what do you have to do to combat that? One would think that you should try and bring people out of it, bring people together, focus on what we can do. So there's an immense like need to, for lack of a better word, buck up the country. Mm-hmm. And so this was thought um, to be done through artist work. And so Hopkins kind of took it upon himself to advocate for artists getting the same kind of treatment that people who were building bridges and and paving sidewalks were getting. Like, those jobs were equally vital to this success of the New Deal. And so they create several branches to kind of combat that and definitely phrased it as, like, we're putting everybody back to work. So not only do performers need work, writers, stage managers, designers, crew, like, all of those guys are out of work, too, and mm-hmm. they have a skill, and they have a they have a part of the fabric of America that they are participating in, and they deserve the same kind of credit in the New Deal. So cool. they create, yeah, right? What's the downside, Michael? I, it seems like you're employing people and you're investing money in the economy and you're like yeah, creating art, culture. Yeah, but art is so subjective. They should just do it on their own. Um, anyway, sorry. Uh, so they create like four, I think four branches of the artistic kind of side of things. There's like the Federal Music Project, the Federal Writers Project. Maybe it was just art. Federal mm. Art Project, yeah. So art, writing, music, and theater. We're each kind of given their own branch. Um, 
So we're going to concentrate on the Federal Theater Project because Hopkins decides to bring Hallie into the mix as a former classmate. And she was kind of like a leading person Mm -hmm. of modern, applicable theater for the masses, right? It was a goal of the Federal Theater Project to not only provide work to jobless artists of the time, but to also provide that work or to provide the outcome of that work, that art, to everyone. What the Depression did most drastically was really show the have and have nots and drastically change those numbers to be overwhelmingly a lot of people who didn't have a lot. So like you can't create all this art and then not have people able to consume it. So there was a lot of emphasis on uh, a working man's wage, but also like work that a working man could see. Um, Now when cultivating a season or cultivating an artistic expression and you want everyone to enjoy it, or you want a lot of people of a certain socioeconomic class to see it, you're maybe going to pick plays that are applicable to those people and like subject matter that those people would enjoy. That's a shocking trying, concept. We're also trying to like push thoughts and feelings and stories um, that a lot of people can get a lot out of. And this is apparently controversial. So anyway, let's get there in a second. Um, she is down with it she's so excited to do it she thinks like work for the masses is sort of the best calling for the american and to create an american theater was um a concept not lost on a lot of people and to this day many countries have a national identifying theater that is subsidized by the government one would say the national theater in britain is one such kind of place or um you know, plenty of Russian ballet companies and such like that. But, you know, there's 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 a format for it that exists now. Um, kind of a cultural identity. The Kennedy Center, I feel like, is like a, a once upon a time version of that that can't quite but is but isn't. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel like it. it's this weird thing where it is this like national cultural symbol, but the like purpose it serves is not to produce theater for the United States in the same way that like a national theater in the UK Mm -hmm. is doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, She gets a $7 million budget. She hires almost all the theater workers who are eligible to under the law. And by 1936, she had hired um, 12,500 people in 28 states. So this is also kind of the start of the regional theater movement. So not only was her work focused in New York or D.C. or the big cultural um, cities of the time, she thought that this kind of work should be seen in her home states of Iowa, South Dakota, Colorado, where her husband lived. Um, and so the in New York City alone, the Federal Theater Project paid or I'm sorry, played weekly audiences of like 350,000 people. Wow. And they would get reduced prices and many of whom were never allowed or never able to see live theater before. Mm -hmm. And this is a time in the 30s too, like movies are a thing, definitely. Radio is a thing, but there's still a huge amount of people that um, would gladly go to the theater if they could. Going to the theater is no different um, in terms of time. To then uh, and having to like leave your house to go do a thing as opposed to today where we have to kind of make a case to go out of your house because there's so much entertainment allowed in your house now. Yeah. Back then you would have to go seek it out somewhere else. The radio was kind of the only thing going on in your home if you had a radio because you were super poor. Um, 
So, 36, uh, the New Deal was never super accepted the whole time. It had critics the entire time. It's really hard pill to swallow for Americans, for a great deal of Americans, I should say. And I think we talk about it favorably now because we can see a lot of good that came out of it. And I think the, you know, deification of FDR did a lot with that because he did so much in World War II. So we kind of forgive him of a lot of sins that he may have committed otherwise in his presidency. I'm not saying the New Deal is a sin, but I'm saying like it maybe doesn't get the criticism that it did at the time. Yeah. Because we love him so much because of World War II and our like cultural uh, feeling about that whole conflict. So, um, at the time though, there was clear opposition to federally funded anything because, uh, well, let me try and find the like calm way of saying it. Um, uh, what, uh, I'm just not, I'm not a conservative, so it's hard for me to put my head where they are. Um, I think it's just, I'm trying to put it in a way like if if an alt-wing person or an alt-right person got federal funding to say their message, would I still advocate for it? Mm. And so if their message is uh, against every part of my idealism of what this country is, would I want the federal government to fund it? Because it's controversial and it promotes conflict. No. And in a warped way, that's what they thought (laughs) this artist wing of the WPA was doing. A lot of them felt it was fostering communist sympathy. Um, They thought it would... There's just a general feeling of, like, you can't... You know, we hear it today where it's like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You gotta figure... You gotta work hard in order to get your... Get anything in this world and that you shouldn't get a handout and... I mean, what is the New Deal, if not reformatted, to just be a gigantic government handout for most Americans? Mm. Um, So I guess they, I mean, one can't work if there are no jobs. So clearly you got to start the wheel somewhere. But Very true. They were kind of warped in the um, feeling of, well, who's going to pick this? subject matter and how do we know you're picking the right thing and what is American and as we all know there's a lot of feelings about what is really American and what is not I mean just like there is today there's a lot of feelings about what you get to be what you get to call American and the way to be an American and this is kind of a very clear example of stuff we're still living with today I think but a couple flags for Hallie come up the fact that she promotes subject matter in plays that um, is uh, very pro-worker. She does one play about a female president who seeks out peace instead of war. Oh, no, we can't have that. I was like, oh, I need to read that play. Um, I'm not going to say they were all racist, but the fact that a giant wing of the Federal Theater Project promoted the work of African-American actors designers, stage managers, and such, because they had to be segregated because life was crazy. Um, the fact that they promoted those productions on equal footing with white productions maybe caused some rifts in a conservative lifestyle. Um, <laughs> because if we can't help the whites first, whatever. Oh, pick boy. Your, pick your nonsense to care about. Um, I will say, like, some of the amazing things that they did, like, they did do all all African-American productions, one of which that was, like, 
they still talk about today is um, Orson Welles got his first kind of crack at stuff in this pro- in this production, and he put together a I think it was a Haitian set in Haiti, um, Macbeth, oh. with all African American performers, and he kind of does it in like a voodoo esque wet Caribbean style of like the witches and everything like that, and that was sort of. If you want to talk about, like, a, a darling of the American theater, he kind of hit at the right time to show, like, immense creativity, out-of-the-box stuff, and, like, kind of daring choice. Like, it wasn't it wasn't a safe choice to do all of those things at once. And he was like, we got the ability to do it, and a lot of people can see it on the cheap. Yeah. So, what better time? So, that was kind of a huge moment. There's also some tales of... Uh, integrated performances promoted by the federal theater project so that's controversial too just like having an all black production like having a mixed race produ- how dare you blah, 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 blah. um oh, it's just all distraction um yeah there's these things called uh living newspapers which i think i talked when we did ethel waters yeah a little bit i've and i've they would, heard about those they would dramatize the newspaper uh, stories of the time, which I will say, this is the one thing that I, I was like flagged for me. I was like, I don't know if I would like that because a story, a factual story, would then be interpreted by a performance, and I don't know that that just read a little tense to me. Do you know what I mean? There is like dramatizing journalism just made me a little tense. Totally <laughs> like, fair. I was like, we're, we're now in the world of alternative facts. And I'm like, okay, I could that one would flag for me. But I do think it's kind of an interesting topic when a lot of people can't even, you know, get the news exposure that they did today. Also, like, newspaper dudes are maybe not the most um, moral at this time. So, yeah, so it's wh- like... Whose newspaper are we reading and who's writing the right. copy of that? You know what I mean? It, Which yeah. is, like, more or less factual, the performance yeah. or the newspaper itself. But a way of, like, mass uh, exposure to news of the time. Do you know what I mean? You can help everybody out. Yeah. Give them a Cliff Notes version of what's going on in the world. Um, so, anyway, let's see. Where do we get? They do a lot of great work, though. They're putting a lot of people to work. It's the late 30s. <sighs> the whole time that it exists, they get a lot of flack from the conservative right about what they're doing with government funds and how dare they and all of this stuff. So... A uh, congressman dies, which is a great name for him. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, he's terrible. Starts a little committee. I think it's the House of Un-American Activities Committee. It might have been called something else in the late 30s, but it becomes something pretty um, domineeringly terrible in the 50s. Uh, and this Charles Walton, who was a stage manager, which, traitor, um, <laughs> he says the setup of the whole arts project is nothing but a f- very clever fence to sow the seeds of communism. So I don't know what Charles Walton's deal was, but he decided to just like light that bomb and throw it into a bunch of like salivating Republicans at the time. And uh, Flanagan is called to testify. And I will just say this about pretty much every congressional theatrical nonsense uh, what do you call it? Commi- committee? I don't know. Like a committee hearing Testimony? Like, name it. Anytime you see congressmen on TV, on their giant tribunal 
desk of judgment with this little witness down in front of them with 18 million mics and they go rah, rah, rah. it's such it, the ironic thing I find is that it's such a performance mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yes. so theatrically motivated and bizarre and just orchestrated it's I, I they shouldn't be televised they shouldn't have any press in there it should be supreme court style and the fact it's all there for votes and i i hate it it's just so performative and disgusting and honestly they're bad actors every single one they're of them so if bad they were good it. actors they'd be in hollywood but they went to politics instead because as we all know politics is hollywood for ugly people i said it oh i'm not mad about it I said i've it. never heard that before it's right isn't it a lot of the same tendencies yeah anywho damn i, I love our country um so she has to go testify before this just beautiful group of dudes and um they just run her over the rails and they ask her a bunch of nonsense about her history oh you went for 14 months you traveled to you traveled outside america to learn things and where did you go did you go to russia and she's like yes i went to russia and they're like how long were you in russia she's like two months out of the 14 and they're like, yeah, but that's the longest you were any one place. And she's like, yeah, I liked Russia. And they were like, why? You can't like Russia. And um, kind of blows their minds. And she has to just fight an accusation about what's in your mind. And no one really does well with that. So uh, she denies accusations. Her goal was always for theater, for the masses, Accessible theater for everyone, American theater, a way to create like a foundational artistic identity mm-hmm. of the country, and also to foster the voices of Americans. I think the whole thing that we haven't talked about yet is just the amount of writers that she produced and advocated for and gave an avenue for. Like, we wouldn't have Arthur Miller if not for her, or Clifford Odets. Or, I mean, name it. There's a lot of people that kind of... Orson Welles. You wouldn't have a lot of film because Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, all of his stuff percolates through the generations. If he didn't have his start here, who knows what we would have had. Mm-hmm. Um, she does her best. She is poised and amazing in front of this kind of circus. Uh, and unfortunately, it doesn't work out for her because in 1939, they decide to pull funding for the Federal Theater Project, not because of budgetary concerns, primarily just because we don't know what kind of message you're sending and it's scary and we don't want to do it. Um, there's a whole Oof. part of this uh, story kind of dramatized called The Cradle of Rock, which is a movie from the 90s, where if... This is me just going off book right now, so I'm sorry if I don't remember. But there was a play about striking and workmen's rights and, like, the plight of the working man at the time. And um, it was controversial. It was applicable to a lot of people at the time. It was seen as pro-communist. And the Federal Theater Project tried to put it up and the government shut it down because of subversive content. Oh, boy. Which is sort of... It was... Um, in a in a place of free speech is very disturbing, and there's this con- there's this conversation about you know 
why does the government have to fund stuff that's controversial? They can stick to things that are maybe a little more um, palatable for everyone because they do have to see both sides in like a paternalistic way. Do you know what I mean? But at the same time, if you don't have the weight of the government behind these kind of controversial things, like, will it ever be seen? Yeah. I mean, that in particular, I'm like, oh, so what you mean by subversive is you mean it's not really pro-business. It's not American. It depends on who it's, it's subverting, right? Right, right, exactly. Like, the, like things are, that are one yeah. person subversive or another me, person is, like, uplifting. Blah, blah, blah. But it might not be subverting the congressman from the Bronx or, you know, or like an industrial epicenter. The, like, people working, doing yeah. the actual thing. Yeah. might find that very uplifting. Being like, oh, yeah. yeah, they did not pay me for three weeks and then yeah. threw me out for striking. Yeah. What is this system? Um, so anyway, that was pretty controversial. Hallie Flanagan fights to the end, but I think she's pretty aware of the reality. Um, she gets a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to supervise work on theater research based on the Federal Theater Project. And she writes a book called Arena, which is a history of the FTP. Mm. Um, she tries to keep going back to Vassar and develop the dramatic major that she had started. And um, the drama department is eventually founded. There's a lot of like infighting between her and the other people that are there. She was clearly a controversial person at this point. Um, she takes a leave of absence from Vassar in the 40s, and then she goes to become the acting dean at Smith College. And... In 1945, uh, she is diagnosed with Parkinson's, Hmm. um, but decides to remain at Smith for the rest of her life. She doesn't remain dean, but she becomes a professor and chair of the drama department there. She um, writes plays, she produces plays, and she retires to Poughkeepsie in 1955. She's recognized by many... Uh, for her contributions to modern theater and gets an honorary degree from Williams College. She um, goes on to live in New Jersey until 1969 where she passes away from complications due to Parkinson's. And she still had a lot of peers alive at the time of her death that were from the Federal Theater Project. And John Houseman, who was like Orson Welles number two and did a lot of producing for him mm-hmm. and kind of fostered him and helped bring about a lot of his creative ideas, uh, wrote about her in the New York Times when she passed away that those of us in the theater will remember her for those three fantastic years in which she and her collaborators turned a pathetic relief project into what remains the most creative and dynamic approach that has yet to be made to an American national theater. And... It was only three years, but the amount of work that they put forth was sort of groundbreaking, and you can still see the ripple effects today. As I said, Arthur Miller got his start with the Federal Writers Project, um, Odette's. You brought a lot of classics to audiences that would have never seen it prior, so Mm -hmm. you brought together races on the stage in a way that was topical and of its time, the living newspaper aspect And um, one of her first projects that I thought was fascinating was that she tried to do a simultaneous production across the country. So everybody did the same play on the same night. Oh, that's very cool. In every city across America. And with that, um, 
like three million people saw the same play at the same time. Something crazy. A bunch of millions of people. And they estimate that at some point in the three years, uh, 25 million people had seen a production coming out of the Federal Theater Project, which at the time was like a quarter of the population of America. Wow. Which is just massive numbers, which would also scare a conservative if you're reaching that many minds. What are you going to turn them against me? <laughs> um, and I just think it, it was a good idea. I don't honestly know if we can sustain a federal theater or a national theater identity. I think it is too hard for both sides to come to a consensus about what... And I think that we would, if we did get one, we would only do safe art. And we would only do art that, like, everyone's okay with? Is everyone okay with this? Okay, great. And then it would be, like, boring. Yeah, and I think the the point I've heard raised is that, like, the country is too big and too diverse to have, like, a building somewhere that purports to, like, do theater for the nation. Um, yes. National Theater of Scotland has a really cool model where they, like do productions like based in communities and they like have a building but it's more like a headquarters and they tour all of their productions and that has always struck me as like a model that might be better suited for the u.s well i also wonder like how much i need i didn't do much research on the nea but i think um a national endowment for the arts that is then sparsed out to the country Mm -hmm. seems to be a, a a creative um solution to this problem of like Many theaters across the country can take the money and then apply it to their community in a more specific way, which I do think is, like, a better solution for this world um, that we're living in, even though every, 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 every presidential term, we have to talk about how we have to defund it, and I don't understand. I don't understand why arts and culture is denied as worth anything. It's like the cultural identity of the country is not worth anything to these. And like the systematic devaluing of arts is something we see, I think, from this time to now. Like, mm-hmm. I think it was probably revolutionary to be like, yeah, we're going to fund the actors as well, because you don't take that as a serious yeah. job. Americans, the American culture, I don't think, take that as a serious vocation or job. And what I find immensely ironic is I would say it's our leading export of today. Oh, 100%. Industry-wise. We are making money in the world because of entertainment. Yeah. It's... And to to just be like, oh, what a flippant choice you're making. It's like, yeah, but we're actually probably going to keep America <laughs> of value. I mean, like, they're not buying our, name it, products. I mean, it, they're buying Marvel movies. And you better hope we keep making those here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, they, it's so, yeah, the way you frame that, it, it's this fascinating tension right of like the entertainment industry is huge and it's like such an important part of like the economy of our global brand and at the same time it's like but we don't take anyone who does that seriously unless they get super famous in which case then we'll ask their opinion on everything yes yeah and i just don't think yeah it's just not very balanced either like do i want an actor telling me how to run the country no i don't either i don't i'm not saying that but i'm also saying like respect and dignity to all professions if you have respect and dignity in the way you're doing your craft or your your skill set i think there's there's a value to all of it yeah you know what i mean and you also as an artist you need people to be able to access your art so when you're stuck in an economy that only praises rich people 
and is able to only provide art for rich people, then you get a lot of weird stuff that just doesn't matter. So, like, this kind of leveling out, like, when we can do free Shakespeare, when we can do free, um, like, the public theater does it in the park every summer, the fact that that Mm -hmm. still exists is so amazing, and I think ties back to all of that. Like, it should keep going. Yeah. It should, like, at least, I get it. With Shakespeare, you don't have to pay for rights. You can do it really easily. It's a big ensemble piece. You can be super creative with it. It makes sense. A lot of people are like, oh, I don't care. I don't care about Shakespeare. But at the same time, if it gets people into a theater, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. We talked about a lot of stuff. But yeah. Keep funding the NEA, guys. Yeah. Arts are important. Just keep funding it. And it doesn't cost that much money. We're, no. We're really cheap. And I should say, like, also fund roads and bridges. Like, all of the things matter. No one is the preferred child in that scenario. We're yeah. all children. <laughs> we all need We all need this stuff. Yes, we do. But how do you pay for it? Well, you know what, dude? That's your job. Figure it out. That, yeah, you know li- what I mean? That I is literally that your job. that outsourcing of the problem back to the voter, where it's like, I believe you were hired for this job. That's why we pay you. said you wanted to do it. You wanted to figure out these problems. And then when you can't find one that gets you votes, then all of a sudden it's like, America, I need your help figuring this problem out. Hey, buddy. I don't call you and I, like, I don't can't need, get, like, yeah. a speaker working. I'm like, exactly. hey, so you hired me to do this, but I'm going to throw it back to you. How do I plug this in and get it to work? Yeah. Anyway. Respect and dignity for all professions. Being a politician is hard. I'm just going to end it there. How about that? That feels like the a H-U-A-C great place is the to worst. End it. In yes. my opinion, the House of Un-American Activities Committee is the worst of America. It's it's the period of history that gets me to this day riled up beyond uh, logic. It blows my mind that it happened at all, and I. I think it has to do with, I learned about this. I said this last week, I think. I learned about the Federal Theater Project, the House of Un-American Activities Committee, and I read The Crucible for the first time, which was written at the time Mm -hmm. of the committee about the Salem Witch Trials and, like, how group hysterics can ruin a lot of people's lives. And uh, I just remember being like, how could they not see? Like, they were all just so tunnel vision and warped and... it just blows my mind. And the fact, yeah, the theatrical nature of it all mm-hmm. is the most astounding thing. Like, if Joseph McCarthy didn't have radio or television, like, would he have been as powerful? I don't think so. <sighs> or newsreels or whatever the fuck. And if you think it doesn't matter, guys, just I just want to put it out there. Do you know who Joseph McCarthy's, like, number two dude was? Tom. Roy Cohn. Do you know who taught Donald Trump about lawyers? Roy Cohn. It's not that far removed. Do you know what I mean? The it's like staggeringly that not that far removed. For the HUAC was the lawyer for Donald Trump, who is now the president. And if you think that doesn't matter, I don't think you understand things. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry, we got on a fun rant. No, I feel like that's the like place the, to end it. It's like it's like the type of yeah. That part of American history is so fascinating to me, but also just infuriating that I think I just fixate on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And poor Hallie Flanagan. Just but, you know, middle. I think there's a theater for her. Um, like, the theater building itself on Smith Campus is named for her now, and so there's a lot of, like, Flanagan Performing Arts Center, or whatever it's called. Um, awesome. So her name lives on today. But also, like, a chick running a giant wing of... 
a federal project. Like, that seemed... Every time she was in a room, it's like, yeah, you're supposed to be here, Hallie, but also, like, they in all the research I saw, it wasn't like, and a woman was doing it. It was just sort of like, yeah, she's the best for the job. Mm-hmm. She's great at it. And she was able to just comport herself in all of these rooms well and advocate for herself. She's great. She sounds awesome. She's really cool. And she always has a good hat and a photo. So. Good. Anyway. Amazing. I think we filled the time pretty good for only one person. I think we did. Nicely done. I, I had I when you told me like uh, I can't do a lady earlier than this week, and I was like, I'll do a lady that gets me like talking a lot, and clearly it worked out. Yes. If I talk about Joseph McCarthy, I'm definitely going to talk for an hour because it was <laughs> bizarre, bonkers. I know. Well, I'm going to pick a more mild thing next time. I think. Okay. Uh, <laughs> or something like relentlessly positive. I feel like we have not done a lot of relentlessly positive like things a sweet, recently. A sweet story. Wouldn't that be nice? Let's, like a little like Yeah, let's shoot for that. A heartwarming moment. I think I could do that. Yeah, I need a little yeah, I drink too much coffee. <sighs> okay. All right, Michael. Uh, talk to you soon. I hope you yeah, yeah, yeah. Hope you enjoyed this for your birthday. <laughs> this was great. I I okay, legitimately cool. learned so much and now I've got a, oh, a nice. list of plays I want to go read. Yeah, I have to send you more. There's some really good there's also some really good like art. Is it Art Deco? I don't know. That good 1930s, really cool graphic mm-hmm. the, like for a the lot of show the posters. posters. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. Cool. Um, and there's some good production photos of that Macbeth. Oh, yeah. I would love to see of, those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. On that note, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.